This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. When Hugo Chavez began his first presidential term in 1999, some saw his ascent to the Venezuelan presidency as a hopeful sign that democracy in Latin America might yield prosperity, education, and independence for larger segments of the population than had benefited from the neoliberal Washington consensus. Others, including many who would soon find themselves high up in the Bush administration, didn't quite see it that way. Instead, they saw a threat to democracy, oil security, and stability in a region that had enough problems already. Many also saw Chavez as a potential next Fidel Castro, with all the associations that brings to mind. But whether you think he's a fabulous 70s throwback, a dangerous dictator, or just another politician, Chavez has changed the discourse about Latin American politics and oil. Even so, Chavez's rocky relationship with the U.S. government and the U.S. media has meant that many of us don't actually have a lot of information about him. With his recent biography of Hugo Chavez, journalist Bart Jones is one of those trying to remedy the situation. Jones worked for eight years in Venezuela, mainly as a foreign correspondent for the Associated Press, and in that time, he interviewed Hugo Chavez a number of times. He used those interviews, as well as years of other research, to put together his biography, Hugo, the Hugo Chavez story, From Mud Hut to Perpetual Revolution, which is out from Steerforth Press. Jones joined me in the studio to talk about his book, about Venezuela, and about why we should make the effort to figure out what's actually going on down there. Bart Jones, welcome. Thank you. Now, how did you come to be in Venezuela? Well, I originally went down to Venezuela as a Marinol lay missioner, which is, uh, for folks that are not familiar with it, it's a kind of a Catholic Peace Corps organization. I had a long interest in Latin America, began working with uh, Latino youths back in the 1980s as a kind of church volunteer. And uh, by the early 90s, wanted to go down and live there for a while. So I signed up with Marinol, and I actually spent the first 18 months of my time in Venezuela living in a, in a, in a barrio, a slum, essentially. Very poor neighborhood, uh, really uh, the kind of neighborhood that Chavez grew up in himself. So it was a really valuable experience uh, as a journalist. Life in Venezuela, it depends on where you live, really. Uh, if you live uh, where these poor folks uh, are concentrated, uh, really people are living either in, in mud huts like the kind Chavez grew up in or these kind of tin shacks, basically kind of like um, you know just pieces of metal they've put together and, and made these very makeshift homes. But that's, that's one part of the country, that, and that is the majority, and these are the Chavez supporters. Uh, but the other part of the country, the country that hates Chavez, uh, these are the people that live in these very upscale neighborhoods. I mean, you can live in some neighborhoods down there, and it's almost like living on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It's such you know, a tremendous contrast with the way uh, most folks live down there. And when I lived in this neighborhood called Altamira in Caracas, uh, you know, there were Burger Kings and Blockbusters and, you know, fancy restaurants. And it, was, it was wonderful. It was in the foothills of the Mount Avila in Caracas. So Venezuela can either be a, a beautiful, wonderful life or, uh, or living in a shack, you know, in a, in a really kind of desolate area. It, it all kind of depends. Uh, but it's extremely polarized uh, economically and, of course, now politically with Chavez. You know, he has... Uh, helped, you know, line up the population on both sides of the issue and uh, really intensified these class divisions. Tell me how you first learned of Hugo Chavez. Chavez was really an unknown figure in Venezuela. Uh, he uh, came to national prominence on February 4th, 1992, uh, just as I was kind of in the process of arriving there. And he uh, he launches this coup against the government at that time of President Carlos Andres Perez. 
Uh, he was basically completely unknown to the population. But by appearing on television for 72 seconds that morning, he becomes a hero to all of these poor people living in these slums in Venezuela. Three years prior to that, there had been an uprising known as the Caracaso. And during this uprising, hundreds of people were massacred by the military after they had rioted in, in the streets following the implementation of, of kind of an IMF uh, economic uh, shock program. So from Chavez's point of view, the president had sent the military into the streets to massacre people who were simply rioting because they were hungry. This is Chavez's explanation of his coup in 1992. So he becomes a hero to all these people. I arrived there a few months after the coup, and then I'm, of course, there present during the second coup, led by other military rebels who were kind of allies of Chavez. Chavez by now was in jail. He spent two years in jail for leading this coup attempt. That's when I first learned about Chavez. By 1994, when he is let out of jail, I am by then working for the Associated Press Bureau in Caracas. You know, I began to kind of meet Chavez and follow him very closely interviewed him, you know, a number of times after that. And then, of course, when he ran for president in 98, he was, you know, all over the news. So who is this guy? Tell me his story in a nutshell. Well, Chavez is born in real uh, poverty. He's born in the mud hut of his grandmother in the Great Plains of Venezuela, uh, really in the middle of nowhere. They, you know, they had very few doctors or nurses in this area of Venezuela uh, in the 50s when Chavez was born. So he's delivered by a midwife, uh, literally in the living room, so to speak, of his grandmother's uh, mud hut. Grows up very poor, but Chavez has a dream as a boy. Like many uh, children in Venezuela, uh, he loves baseball. Baseball is really the national sport in Venezuela. Uh, it was introduced there in the 20s by American oil workers, ironically, who uh, came down to begin to exploit uh, Venezuela's uh, oil resources as they were discovered. So Chavez has his dream of becoming a major league baseball player. He plays baseball as a kid. He's a, he's a pitcher, a left-handed pitcher. You know, you might say he was a lefty even back in those days. And, and he wants to get into the major leagues. But the only way he can do that is that he needs to get discovered by the scouts, and no scout is going to discover Chavez in this little town of Sabaneta out in the middle of the Great Plains of Venezuela in the middle of nowhere. So he comes up with a plan. And his plan is to get into the military academy of Venezuela in the capital of Caracas, which is really the West Point of Venezuela. A few months after he arrives there, his dream of becoming a baseball player begins to fade, and he really falls in love with the life of being a soldier. Uh, he loves the, the pageantry and the, and the uniforms and the drills and the beautiful, glistening white uh, military academy building on the campus there in Fort Tiuna. So he, uh, you know, gives up this dream of becoming a major league baseball player and devotes himself to uh, the military. Stays there for four years, graduates in 1975. And uh, a couple of years after he gets out, he forms his first small conspiracy in the military, and it's just him and a few other guys who uh, kind of sit around and talk about their anger over the social injustice in Venezuela. And this uh, small little clandestine cell doesn't really go very far. But by 1982, Chavez forms a much more serious conspiracy. And this one goes on for 10 years in the military. Uh, he recruits other uh, soldiers uh, in the military. He recruits cadets at the military academy, where amazingly he's sent back to give classes, even though he's secretly conspiring against the government. Uh, he recruits uh, leftist intellectuals from the universities and former leftist guerrillas. So this movement goes on for 10 years, and the movement has its ups and downs. 
But by 1989, when we have the Catacaso food riots, you know, it just enrages Chavez and his allies that they are sent out into the streets to, you know, mow down people. And this is well after the rioting had finished, I should point out. Uh, the majority of people killed in the Catacaso food riots were killed inside their homes simply by soldiers who, you know, were ordered to basically shoot anything that moves. <laughs> and that's exactly what they did. Chavez and his allies are outraged by this. And this really injects a new energy into a secret uh, clandestine movement in the military. By 1992, on February 4th, he launches his coup. And as I mentioned, the coup fails militarily, but it succeeds politically, turns Chavez into a big hero for all of these poor people. He spends two years in jail, and by 1994, he gets out, uh, spends a few years kind of crisscrossing the country, you know, not really sure what to do with himself. But by 1997, decides to run for president. His main opponent in this uh, campaign is a six-foot-one blonde former Miss Universe. So this campaign was known as the Beauty and the Beast. Uh, and obviously, Chavez was the Beast, and, uh, and he wins. Uh, you know, he, he wins in a landslide in 1998 in December and goes on to become president. So that's really just Chavez's life up until he becomes president. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We are talking on the show this morning about Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez. My guest is journalist and Fordham graduate, Bart Jones. Jones is a reporter for Newsday, and he spent several years in Venezuela covering the Chavez government for the Associated Press. His recent biography of Chavez, Hugo, is out from Steerforth Press. I asked him to talk to me about the political context in which Chavez's story takes place. Politics in Latin America in general are really a lot crazier uh, you know, here, than here in the U.S., Coups in, in, in Latin America are almost common occurrences. You know, Bolivia has had, I don't know how many changes of government in the last 200 years, you know, 150 different governments, uh, some of which lasted eight hours at a time, something like that. So uh, it's a really much more uh, tumultuous uh, situation than here in the U.S. What was happening in Venezuela in particularly, ironically, uh, during the 60s, 70s, 80s, Venezuela was known as the uh, model democracy of Latin America at a time when we had all of these military dictatorships in countries such as Chile and Argentina massacring thousands of people. Uh, Venezuela was had a relatively democratic system. Uh, they were carrying out presidential elections every five years. Uh, two different parties were trading power. And uh, it was seen as an oasis, really, uh, in Latin America at a time where you had all this horrendous bloodshed uh, in other countries. So Venezuela was seen, at least by political scientists, as an exception to the rule. However, in the view of Chavez and his allies, it was a phony democracy. So that is why Chavez uh, decided to launch his coup in 1992. For Americans, it's certainly a shocking thing. It certainly raised questions about his democratic credentials. And yet in Latin America... I don't want to say it was met with a shrug, but, you know, it was, oh, another coup. You know, what's what's new? Uh, this is not all that uncommon there. And helps explain, I think, perhaps why many Venezuelans supported the coup that Chavez carried out in 1992, as hard as that is for Americans to understand. So it had quite a different interpretation down there in Venezuela, I think, than, you know, most Americans uh, would view it as. Within that context, there's also something that we hear on the news sometimes that might maybe not make that much sense, and that is the phrase uh, Bolivarian Revolution. 
Tell me about the role that Simon Bolivar plays in Venezuelan politics. Well, Bolivar is really the guiding light of Chavez's movement. Most Americans have very little knowledge of Simon Bolivar. But down there, he is, I mean, he's more than a god. He's a, he's a sacred figure, kind of like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Jesus Christ all rolled into one. Bolivar is just this towering figure in Venezuela's history. Uh, he led uh, the independence movement of, of, of five countries in, in South America in the early uh, 1800s. He succeeded, obviously, in freeing these countries from Spanish rule. Uh, however, his dream of uniting all of, uh, of South America into one nation ultimately failed, and, and Bolivar died you know, somewhat of a disgrace. So he is a, uh, just a huge figure in Venezuela. Uh, little school children you know, memorize their fr- his phrases. Uh, his phrases are painted on walls all over the country. Everything is named after him, you know, airports, streets, dams. Uh, you know, they're even Venezuela now is actually sending its first satellite into outer space. And, of course, it's named after Simón Bolívar. So uh, he is uh, Chávez's guiding light. And Chávez, indeed, is now trying to carry out Bolívar's uh, vision and dream of united Latin America. And that's why you see him running around down there so much to all these different countries and providing aid and doing things like that, because he wants to uh, resuscitate Bolivar's dream of a united Latin America. And uh, I think you can argue that he's made some progress in doing that. So when um, you hear what he's doing referred to as, um, or him referring to it as a Bolivarian revolution, what, what does that mean? Well, you know, it's open to interpretation, certainly, but uh, it would be some of the main uh, tenets of Bolivar's uh, philosophy. Uh, As I said, one of the big ones is uniting Latin America. They feel that that's the only way, really, to stand up uh, to the United States, which since 1823 has seen uh, Latin America as its backyard, so to speak. Uh, You know, the Monroe Doctrine, when uh, the United States basically declared Latin America as its area of influence. So uh, that's one of the big ones with Bolivar. And uh, basically... Uh, a more just and equal society. Uh, you know, no longer uh, should they have the situation where you have a very small ruling a class controlling all this oil wealth, living in mansions in Caracas, jetting off to Paris and Miami whenever they want for vacations. And then you have the vast majority of people, you know, living in tin shacks or mud huts with dirt streets, without proper education, without proper uh, health care systems. So in a contemporary context, I think, That is how Chavez interprets it, you know, a a more equal, uh, just society uh, in Venezuela. Now, tell me how Hugo Chavez fits in with what's been happening in Latin American politics in the last few years with the rise of several more left-wing leaders. Chavez is really uh, leading a a rise, a whole rise in leftists in Latin America. He was really the first one uh, elected uh, when he came to office in 1998, and we've seen uh, you know, a whole slew of other leaders being elected uh, in Latin America on the left. You know, Lula in Brazil, Correa in Ecuador. Uh, we just had the so-called Bishop of the Poor uh, elected in Paraguay a couple of weeks ago. Evo Morales in Bolivia. Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua coming back from the Sandinista days in the 80s. So uh, what we're seeing, obviously, uh, I think, is a, a rejection of what was known as the IMF free market neoliberal economic shock program, which was implemented in Latin America throughout the 80s and into the 90s to try to deal with a debt crisis, which had exploded in that region uh, during that time. So, uh, you know, it's a wave. It's really a wave of leftists being elected in Latin America. Um, There are differences among them. You know, Chavez is seen as the most radical among them, and he does have the most uh, kind of confrontational approach uh, with the United States and with these institutions. 
Uh, you have others who are seen as more moderate leftists like Lula in Brazil, Bachelet in, in, in Chile. But they are, you know, folks generally on the left. And I, and I think that's the basic way you explain it, that these IMF programs really did not do what they were promised to do. And, you know, they are what led to the Catacaso riots in 1989 in Venezuela, in which uh, hundreds, if not several thousand people were killed uh, in what was, you know, one of the largest uh, massacres in modern Latin American history. You know, you saw that kind of bloodshed, too, uh, when people reacted to these programs. So you had that, that history that went into it also. You referred to this. Um, fill me in a little bit about the historical political relationship between the U.S. and Venezuela. Venezuela has uh, generally been a U.S. ally, even to the point where uh, the U.S. government uh, under Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s awarded the dictator of Venezuela, Pérez Jiménez, the Congressional Medal of Honor. But uh, the U.S. Uh, and Venezuela have always had very close relations, and mainly because of oil as well. Venezuela is one of the top four uh, foreign oil suppliers to the United States. So Venezuela is a very important country uh, for North Americans here in the U.S. So it's been a close relationship. And when Chavez first came to office, you know, there was still somewhat of a kind of detente between Chavez and the Clinton administration. Clinton's people had a much more kind of pragmatic approach with Chavez. And the ambassador at that time, John Maisto, had a famous saying, you know, and he said, well, don't listen to what Chavez says, just watch what he does. Because the rhetoric may be very radical, but the actions really aren't that radical. So they had a real policy of engagement with Chavez uh, early on in Clinton's administration, and they were not so much at loggerheads. When President Bush came to office, uh, that all changed. And uh, Bush basically brought back into power uh, many figures from the Iran-Contra scandal of the 1980s, Otto Reich. Elliot Abrams, John Negroponte. Uh, these were guys all, you know, implicated in, in the Iran-Contra scandal, a very kind of, you know, hard uh, right-wing folks, uh, very, you know, ideological. And they really saw Chavez as an ex-Fidel Castro in Latin America. So immediately uh, you had this clash. And it really kind of culminated uh, in the view, I think, of many people in the uh, April 2002 coup against Chavez in which this time, Chavez was the target of a coup, overthrown, removed from power uh, for two days. He disappeared. And what happened is that the U.S. government essentially endorsed this coup against Chavez. There, there was a guy named Pedro Carmona who took over the country when Chavez was removed temporarily from power. Uh, this guy basically wiped out democracy, installed a dictatorship. And on his first full day in power, he has breakfast with two ambassadors to Venezuela one of whom is the U.S. ambassador to Venezuela. So I think uh, the U.S. was really seen as endorsing this coup against Chavez. Up until that time, Chavez himself was, you know, relatively restrained with his rhetoric toward the Bush administration. And even for some time after that coup remained that way. But it was really kind of the beginning of the end, I think. From there on, the rhetoric really ratcheted up on both sides. And obviously today, uh, you know, there's no love lost between the Bush administration and Chavez. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. Good morning. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning at 7.30, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a Mother's Day extravaganza, possibly followed by brunch. My guest on Fordham Conversations today is Bart Jones. Jones is the author of the biography Ugo, the Hugo Chavez story from Mud Hut to Perpetual Revolution, out from Steerforth Press. I mentioned to Jones that one of the things that seems interesting to me about Hugo Chavez is the fact that he uses rhetoric that's reminiscent of the language of Latin American leftists of the 70s and also of Fidel Castro. Is Hugo Chavez a throwback? And if so, to what? 
you know, Chavez, in some ways, some would argue, uh, his opponents would certainly argue that he's a throwback, you know, to the kind of 60s, failed state socialism of the Soviet Union. And they would say that this guy just wants to impose another Cuba in Venezuela. And that is the great fear of, of his opponents. And there's certainly some ammunition there uh, that they can use legitimately. Chavez is obviously buddies with Fidel Castro. You know, he makes no question about that. He visits with Castro often. Uh, he's on the phone with him quite a bit. He's called him his, like his father figure. Uh, and he's openly uh, said things that he admires about the Cuban system. So uh, his opponents have some real concerns that, you know, he's going to be a throwback and he's going to go back to uh, another Cuba type of situation. I do think, though, it's important uh, to look at it kind of objectively that, so far at least, Chavez has not done what Castro did in Cuba. Uh, You know, Venezuela has real elections. Uh, Venezuela has a real media, a free media, unlike in Cuba. Uh, People can go on television and call Chavez a dictator and nothing really happens to them. And people can take to the streets by the thousands, and they do this in Venezuela, to protest against Chavez. I can't recall the last time I saw that happening in Cuba against Fidel Castro. Chavez has not, you know, expropriated the entire economy of uh, Venezuela the way that Castro did in Cuba. He has taken over some companies in Venezuela, nationalized some companies, uh, but he's paid market price. Uh, At least until now, it would seem that there are some real clear differences between these two men. And whether Chavez will indeed implement a Castro-style, you know, dictatorship in in Venezuela, who knows? But I think it's fair to say up until now, the facts really don't quite bear that out. Now, why, two-part question, why is Chavez so popular and how popular is he really? I think Chavez is popular because for the first time in Venezuela's history, he is really redirecting uh, the vast oil wealth to the majority poor. And he's doing it through things like health and education programs. Chavez has stationed something like 20,000 Cuban doctors in these poor neighborhoods uh, where these doctors actually live there and provide medical services 24 hours a day. This is unheard of in Venezuela. You know, it really is revolutionary for people living in those poor neighborhoods. Uh, Most Venezuelan doctors would never dare set foot in one of these neighborhoods, much less move in and provide health care 24 hours a day. They have also uh, instituted education programs under Chavez. They have uh, taught something like 1.5 million illiterates to read and write. You know, it's kind of hard to argue that that's a bad thing. He does have a lot of supporters, but there are, as you mentioned, a lot of people who really, really hate him. Some of them more extreme, some of them less so. What do detractors say about him? Well, I think his detractors' uh, biggest fear is that uh, Chavez, uh, you know, they, they believe he wants to impose another Castro-style communistic system in Venezuela. Um You know, they feel that he's accumulating too much power in his hands. They say that he is controlling the National Assembly, which his supporters do indeed control. Uh, They say he uh, he controls the Supreme Court, uh, which indeed, you know, is controlled uh, by uh, Chavez supporters. So, you know, there is a lot of uh, fear of the the communism, the the concentration of power in Chavez's hands. His opponents critique some of these so-called social missions in the poor neighborhoods, the education and the health programs. They say that they're very inefficient, they don't work. You know, some even claim that the Cubans, they're really not doctors, they're just kind of doctors in training. You know, there's a lot of critiques. And there's certainly, you know, legitimate critiques to be made of uh, Chavez's government. But the the hatred uh, sometimes, you know, it's gotten to the point where uh, some uh, part of the opposition has 
uh, attempted to overthrow Chavez in a coup and also uh, shut down the oil industry. So, you know, it's really become an extremely polarized situation in Venezuela. I want to move on to um, the press coverage of, of Chavez in the United States and how we know him as Americans. In terms of that press coverage that we see, what are the big moments that we remember? Some of the big moments are obviously when Chavez called Bush uh, Satan at the, at the U.N., or the devil, rather. I think if you just talk to the average person here in the U.S., which I obviously do, they really see Chavez as, you know, one of the most evil people on the planet, I think. Um, I was speaking to a woman once at a barbecue out on Long Island where I live, and uh, you know, she said, oh, I, I understand you, you know, interviewed Chavez for your book. And, uh, and she kind of grabbed my arm and she looked at me and she said, you know, are you OK? Are you OK? You know, did they torture you? <laughs> and uh, I said, no, ma'am. You know, I went down and I interviewed Chavez and, and nothing really happened. So uh, I think in the media, we've really had this image of the evil dictator uh, created really kind of a caricature of Chavez, uh, which I don't think fits with reality that much. And it's kind of funny. You know, you see, I think, sometimes maybe a little bit of a double standard when it comes to the coverage of Chavez. Uh, because, for instance, in the neighboring country to Venezuela, Colombia, uh, we have a president over there, uh, and there are very credible allegations that his government uh, has been linked to right-wing paramilitary death squads. His uh, campaign manager had to resign. His foreign minister had to resign. Just last week, his cousin, you know, was implicated in this uh, paramilitary death squad scandal, which is uh, striking the government of Alvaro Uribe. So these are pretty serious allegations. And yet I don't think many Americans know much about that at all. You know, and it's all kind of focused on all the horrible things Chavez is doing. And yet Chavez is certainly not involved with right wing or left wing paramilitary death squads. I think the media coverage uh, hasn't been great on this particular issue, and I'm a member of the media. I was down there covering Chavez as part of the Foreign Press Corps, and I kind of saw firsthand the way some of these journalists operated. They were clearly uh, despised Chavez and, uh, you know, didn't at times really want to provide very balanced coverage. Why do you think the coverage of Chavez has been as it has been? Part of it, you know, the journalists themselves, and this is a challenge for journalists when they go in to cover the, you know, the so-called third world or developing nations, often many of them, what they'll do, uh, if they don't live in these countries, they do what, they, what we call parachute in. You know, they get on a plane and they'll fly down to one of these countries and they'll, you know, go into some five-star hotel and stay there. And that's kind of like the perch from which they view the country, uh, you know, rubbing elbows with the elites, going out to all these upscale restaurants. And they really get a full dose of, of that point of view in these countries. They don't always kind of roll up their sleeves and get into these poor neighborhoods. And this is where Chavez has his base of support. So if you're kind of spending most of your time in a you know, five-star hotel rubbing elbows with the elites, you're not really going to understand, I don't think, the full picture of what's happening in a place like Venezuela. So, uh, and even journalists who live in these countries, and, and you know, I, I'm no exception, you know, often live in these upscale neighborhoods and uh, don't really get into the poor neighborhoods, uh, you know, where Chavez does have his uh, base of support. So I think on the ground, that's kind of one, you know, initial problem, that uh, journalists really need to get out there more and, 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 and get exposed to both sides of the story. Uh, and I tried to do that both in this book and my coverage when I was down there, make sure that I presented both sides and got into the poor neighborhoods as well as uh, the rich neighborhoods. And, you know, Chavez, uh, 
is a real threat, I think, to uh, elites on many levels, uh, you know, certainly to perhaps multinational corporations that, that want access to, you know, cheap natural resources and cheap labor. Well, you know, Chavez is, is retaking control of uh, Venezuela's oil industry and extracting more, you know, taxes uh, out of it. So, uh, you know, he's a threat. He's a threat to people in power. He's a threat to people with a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, they, I think, want to create a, a very negative image of Chavez. And, you know, obviously, you know, he's, he's open for criticism and he should be criticized for things, but it should be kept, you know, a little more balanced, I think, perhaps, and a little more realistic than some of the uh, things you hear. I will ask you one more question and I'll close with this. What should Americans know about Chavez that we don't know? Well, you know, I, I think there's a whole uh, side to Chavez that... Uh, that people have not heard much about. And again, you know, we've seen the, the evil monster, uh, boogeyman uh, caricature of Chavez presented in the media. But there is another side to this man that I think people should uh, understand that I try to present in this book. Uh, and that is that, you know, this is a guy, I, I think, with a genuine desire to help poor people in his country. And, uh, you know, it's not quite as simplistic, I think, as, as we've been led to believe. I think Americans might want to look a little bit beyond what we've seen in the media, what we've heard from the government here, and realize that this is a little bit more complex than, than what we seem to see. And, uh, you know, Chavez is not uh, perhaps quite on the level of, you know, Osama bin Laden or Adolf Hitler. And uh, there are actually some positive things happening in the country which uh, balance out some of the negatives. Well, Bart Jones is a reporter for Newsday, and his book is Hugo, the Hugo Chavez story from Mud Hut to Perpetual Revolution, out from Steerforth Press. Bart Jones, thanks so much. Thank you. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show is available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. If you have comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.